You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. Hey, one and all, it's episode 251 of the Pimpcron Warhammer podcast, and I am that dude I just mentioned, Pimpcron, and you are listening to the aforementioned podcast. I feel like I'm talking in circles. We are brought to you today by GameMat.eu for pre-painted resin terrain, neoprene mats, STL files, all sorts of stuff, and you can use Event 10 for 10% off your order there, and we've got Panhandle3d.etsy.com. For uh, PH3D15 off is 15% off your order there. They will actually print you stuff versus selling you STLs. They'll print you 3D printed stuff. I'm getting ready to make a big order from them for Shorehammer. I love to just buy stuff for my narrative boards and um, stuff like that. So um, I'm getting ready to make my big order from them. They're going to be supporting Shorehammer again this year. I'm excited to continue that partnership. And... Um, They've got, they've also got like um, dice trays and tumblers and all that stuff customized. You can laser engrave or whatever with your club logo and whatnot. So we are also brought to you today by my, boy, they are hot. They are hot, 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 super sexy Patreon patrons. Thank you so much for supporting the show. I greatly appreciate you. I really do. You can join them at patreon.com slash pimpcron if you feel so obliged. So today we only have two topics because it's a pretty long topic in each of them. The real talk is, what's the deal with characters attaching to units in 10th edition? It's a terrible Jerry Seinfeld impression, but the point is, I'm asking that question. It's They've made some curious decisions on what units that certain characters can attach to. So we discuss that in the real talk. Then we've got... Tesseract mailbox. We've got not one, but two lengthy Tesseract mailboxes from our buddies Jonathan and Leroy Jenkins. And one of them's whining about 10th edition, and the other one's singing its praises. So you get a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, a little bit of peanut butter in your chocolate. That's what you get in the Tesseract mailbox. But it's a long segment because we discuss a bunch of stuff. What have I been up to? Working on settlement mode, working on my Pokemon supplement for brutality, working on, uh, oh, that's basically all I've been working on. Got painting some stuff, yada yada, kind of boring. I've got my friend Nick, who plays Age of Sigmar and a little bit of 40k, dabbles in brutality a little bit. He's got his friend that um, he was going to try to get him into the fold for Warhammer, and his friend was kind of eh on Warhammer. And uh, he introduced Brutality to him. His friend's really into Brutality now, which I'm super stoked about. So his friend came this week to the club. We played Brutality. We played three games in the time that uh, Nick and them played one game of Warhammer. And um, the demo game, TJ, this is a new TJ. So all of you who are used to hearing my friend TJ, this is... I'll call him New TJ or Brutality TJ. New TJ beat me by three points, I think, in the first game. And then I beat him by two points, I think it was, in the second game. And then I think he beat me in the third game again by like one or two points. They were all very close games. But uh, he's really, really in deep, as my friend Nick said. Um, very excited about that. And now Nick said he's got another co-worker who's also kind of lukewarm to Warhammer, but he's getting excited about Brutality. So 
I'm thinking with the number of local players I have, I have probably six, eight, something like that local players. I may actually start forming my own brutality club where we meet like once a month or something like that. Meet at my house or meet at the library or just meet at the gaming club and um, we can play brutality. And I would freaking love that. I would love that. I never thought in a million years when I published my book uh, in 2020, I never imagined that I would ever have the chance to even contemplate a local gaming group dedicated just brutality. And I'm, it's not set in stone. I'll wait until the season's over because their job is very busy. My job's very busy and all that. But I'm really hoping that can take off and I'm pretty excited about it. So uh, we had uh, my friend Nick and Just James came over uh, yesterday and we played uh, Brutality. And Nick beat Just James. It, it seemed like he was going to definitely win in the beginning, but then just James kind of brought it back. I don't know if he ever did tie Nick or not in points. Um, he didn't. I don't think he ever quite overtook Nick, but then towards the end, everything kind of fell apart and then Nick got the upper hand once again. So Nick won by a couple points there. Um, three points or so. Uh, it seemed like it was a pretty good game, but it was his Ginyu force from Dragon Ball Z versus um, James's ogres. Now, James made the curious decision to be half a point under. Now, you know, um, seven points is a typical match in brutality. And James decided to bring six and a half points. And I'm like, are you sure you don't want to take seven points? Because it's not like being 50 points under in, in 40K. You're talking, what, 114th? That's quite a bit off. You know, it's taking 100 or 200 points off your list is half a point in brutality. So it just seemed like he was shooting himself with the foot in a little bit. And lo and behold, he did lose. So whether or not that's my expert balancing of points or that's just the roll of the dice, as it were. But either way, he uh, he barely lost. Then Nick and I played a game. He played his Ginyu Force and I played my Brutal Avengers, which is um, the Cyclops, Invisible Woman, Stature from Young Avengers, Spider-Man and Captain America. Um, are all in the Brutal, and they all come together to make Brutal Avengers. And honestly, I cannot remember. I know Nick beat me by a sizable margin, but I can't remember what it was. No, no, actually, he beat me by four points, I think, which sounds like a lot. But I made such a terrible tactical decision in the first turn that two of those points, he definitely... I, I gave him those points because I made such a terrible error. I was so worried about being shot that I didn't move Captain America up to the objective to prevent his little green guy, Goldo, from activating it. So I hid, and I was just out of range of his sight so he could activate the objective and score two points. And I'm like, ah! As soon as he took his turn, I was like, oh, crap. I have messed up. So really, it should have been two points, but because of my mistake, uh, it was four points that he beat me by. But while they were playing their game first, I got some uh, a hobby project from Nick to do. His Bloodthirster, if you know anything about a Bloodthirster, they are so spindly at the bottom. You got these huge wings, big axe, burly muscles, giant dude, and he's basically tiptoeing on a flame. And that's his only thing that connects him to the base. Well, lo and behold, Nick snapped off. So Nick um, is newer to the hobby. He's been playing about a year. He's newer to the hobby than we are. He said, hey, kid, would you mind trying to pin this? And I'm like, sure. So he brings it over. And man, that was a very interesting challenge to pin that thing. Because if you know anything about the base of this, 
the foot and the ankle of the Bloodthirster was not the issue at all. They were nice and thick and sturdy, so you could drill in those easily. But the flame that it attaches to, the flame, if you're looking at it, is curving towards you, towards your face, but it's also kind of curved towards the left. So think of a wave at the ocean and then twist that that wave like slightly uh, counterclockwise. It was very interesting of a challenge to try to get the holes for the pin through his foot and also through that flame at the same angle, maintaining his posture and all that. But you know what? I am darn proud of myself that I got that. I think that was probably the hardest pinning I've ever done. I've pinned lots of stuff because like my um my hive tyrants for Tyranids, they're all metal, both of them. And I had to like pin their arms and stuff because their wings won't hold on, their arms don't stay on. I just had to pin them. So I've pinned lots of stuff in the past. I've pinned resin and whatever. But this was, most most things are much more straightforward. It's like an arm in a shoulder socket or something like that. But this was way crazier. And I was able to shove like a inch and a half, inch and a quarter long nail. That was my pin, a galvanized nail. And uh, that should not be going anywhere. I mean, that that is super, super sturdy now. The plastic's going to give before the nail is going to. So hopefully that sticks for him. Then it didn't quite line up just a little bit where it broke. So I, I used some green stuff to fill it in and, and smooth it out. So you really can't tell it was ever repaired. And Nick's going to repaint that spot. And honestly, you should not be able to tell at all that it's re repaired. So I was super excited that I was able to pull that off. Because that was a hard pin job for sure. Anyway, that is about it. So uh, let's get on with the rest of the show. And uh, thank you for listening to the Pimpcron Warhammer podcast. Let's open the Tesseract mailbox. Hey, it's the Tesseract mailbox. And today we have a couple emails. We're not just going to cover one. We're going to cover a couple because I've been inundated with different emails and it always seems like it's feast or famine here. We either got too many emails and I feel bad for postponing them for weeks and weeks and weeks, or I've got none and I got to like, you know, cry and complain. Oh, please email me. So luckily we are in the monsoon season for emails and that is not a complaint. I love to hear from you guys and I love to hear everyone's takes on things. So first off, We've got a Jonathan. Yes, Jonathan that does the uh, Highlander tournament at uh, Shorehammer. And he's the one that's, um, we've known him since the very first Shorehammer, actually. That's where we originally met him. And um, he takes care of all of the nonsense that goes with running a tournament in 40k. He does the packet and all of that stuff and figures out the missions and, and all that. So we're on the same vibe level as far as competitiveness goes. So he's a really good person to have on the staff, as it were, you know, working for free and all, just like I do. But whatever, you know, it's a team effort. And we're very happy to have him. So let's see what he says. He says, The absence of Force Org charts in 10th. Mr. The Cron, I was listening, listening to you prattle on about how GW needs to get off your lawn and was ready to roll my eyes over what would inevitably be a boomer take. Keep in mind, he's older than I am. But as I, li <laughs> but as I listened, I found myself agreeing with you. 
It was as if the stars had aligned and the cosmos was in a moment of singularity, so humbled by the connection between our two minds that I felt compelled to write in and offer my two cents on the evolution of army construction in 40k. As a member of the 40k over 40 demographic, I too fondly recall the different restrictions to list building. Warm is my heart when I recall the days of less than 50% HQ and greater than 25% troops. My loins swell near to bursting when I think of the Force Org charts that ruled much of the game. In 7th through 9th, we experimented with themed detachments to add a little spiced army building in hopes of rekindling the passion of our youth. Record scratch. Okay, enough of the analogy. I was getting myself a bit too excited. All of the army construction tools GW has offered us over time seemed to always be for the purpose of steering us towards well-rounded lists that are perhaps rooted in the narrative of the faction. Now, us being gamers have always found ways to exploit any format for maximum efficiency, which is a feature, not a bug. GW dropped battlefield roles, i.e. fast, elite, heavy, etc., is a great way of fixing a problem that they had created. A unit's role was completely arbitrary and locked everyone into the Spass Marines style of force composition. For example, units that were quote-unquote fast attack slot were a mixed bag. Sure, bikes and jump packs were pretty quick with 12-inch move, but you also had Death Guard with their 7-inch move chaos spawn, or perhaps uh, Sororitas with their 6-inch move dominions, which I thought was always so weird. Yeah, you're right. That's a weird choice for fast. Then, uh, they couldn't even get it right with Space Marines. Intercessors equal battle line equals troops. Good. Aggressors equal fire support equals elites. That doesn't make any sense. Reavers equals close combat support. Or I should say close support. Equals elites. Bad. Suppressors equals fire support equals fast. Incursors equals close support equals troops. So essentially he's saying that um, Reavers and Incursors have some of the same uh, roles on the battlefield, but one was an elite, one was a troop. And Aggressors and Suppressors were both fire support, but one was an elite, one was a fast. So he's, he's just saying it was very inconsistent. So even the Force Org system hampered building narratively inspired armies, which brings me to the amazing point you made. Well, I'll stop you right there, Jonathan, and I will remind you that all my points are amazing, but let's continue. Tenth lets you pick units that perform a certain role for your army. You need anti-armor? Take something that blows the doors off of four Carnifexes. <laughs> you need speed? Take bikes and jump packs and whatever. You need to hold objectives? Grab a battle line unit for OC2. We can actually build armies that do the things without having to choose between snipers and devastators because they are both heavy support. I am very encouraged that the weird menu-style army construction is gone. And don't tell anyone I said this, but I kinda like that there is no longer a troops tax. Now when I hear people talk about unit taxes, I usually roll my eyes and say something pretentious like, it's, a, it's only a tax if you add it to your list without having any plan on how to use it to help you win. Which is a very good point, Jonathan. Now, I still believe that is true, but now I don't have to hear people whine about it and don't have to alienate myself by being a dickhead. Win-win. <laughs> Anyways, I'm really enjoying 10th edition and am super pumped for Shorehammer this year. John. One-time average John winner, one-time best model winner. Now, I really like this as a trend, okay? I like this as a, as a trend for all the people that come to Shorehammer and have ever 
won an award, you should start putting this in your in your uh, signature. I, I love this. One-time Average John winner. So, the Average John Award, I think I've mentioned it a long time ago on the post, but it's a, a new trophy we started 2022 or 2021. And it's basically the um, exact middle of the pack ranking for Highlander, which I love. I just love the idea that, hey, this person was not the best. This person was not the worst. This person was a solid 50% of the uh, demographic. So he got that one year, which is ironic because his name is John. Doesn't spell it with an H, but still. Okay. I completely agree with you, Jonathan. I think that I think they're in the right direction. Although I've been playing with the idea that maybe it's not the right direction. (laughs) I know you're going to say, oh, this is the boomer take now. I understand that. But I was interested because in the past, just just hear me out for a second. When people included Imperial Knights in their lists, then you had to start taking something that was specifically anti-armor to deal with the Imperial Knights because they had the invulnerable save and high toughness and all that stuff, right? Normally, you could take a whatever-you-wanted list, and it was practically wounding anybody on a 5-up, at least. And then with Knights, you really had to worry about dealing with the Knights. Now, I would admit that just bringing one Knight in an allied detachment really wasn't that big of a deal, but if you brought more than one, it was, it was kind of a big deal. The interesting thing is, my initial idea was that it basically forces you to always pretend there are going to be knights in the list because you're always going to have to take something big to take out the high toughness stuff. But then it occurred to me that I still prefer this new force organization style without the actual force organizational chart because if you choose not to take any anti-vehicle, anti-monster stuff, and you choose to specifically forego that, then you're probably going to benefit in some other way. You're going to have OC2 stuff like Battle Line, which is going to outperform Knights. You're going to have um, more models on the field, surely, than the Knight player will. You're going to have way more bodies on the field than they can probably kill over the course of a game. and they're going to suffer on objectives, which this seems to be a very objective-heavy game. And a lot of maneuvering, a lot of the four corners stuff, you know, engage on all fronts and stuff like that, which knights aren't super fantastic at. So, while you may basically not be able to hurt the knights at all if you don't take anti-knight stuff, this addition actually allows you to just play a different game against them. You play the board coverage game, you play the objective game, you play the outlast them game, and you may not kill them, but you still have a fighting chance with re- regardless of what you took. So for just a brief moment, I thought, ooh, what about this issue with, you know, all, arguably, if you're talking about the old way knights were, every monster and vehicle is now a knight because you have to take something against them specifically. But then I realized you don't really, because you can just ignore them and play your own game and, you know, use the different um, secondaries and all that, and you can still play the way you want. Now, you might get your teeth kicked in, but you'll still be scoring points, and you can... It seems more like there's checks and balances this time. Now that some units score more for um, objective count and all of that, 
that actually really balances the game versus the big nasty stuff that is not going to be able to hold objectives. So, I am still in agreement with you, Jonathan, and thank you for writing in and sharing your two cents. Our next email is from Patreon patron, Leroy Jenkins. And oh, is he mad. Listen to Leroy. He writes, I'm too angry for a greeting. I guess that technically is a greeting. Shut up. Where is the community outrage over being forced to use power level in 10th? GW really catfished us on this one. We are technically using power level. GW just called it points instead. There is no difference between a 7 power level unit and a 140 point unit with all free upgrades. There is no wiggle room for squad sizes. You only want 7 intercessors? Too bad, you're paying for 10. The community. OMG, we hate power level and never use it. GW. We hear that you hate power level, so we renamed it to points. Community. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I actually, that's... I'm actually really surprised as well at this at this take from the community, and there's no outrage, but let's keep listening to Leroy. I understand why they did it. It is very simple for casual new players, so it can appeal to a broader audience. As a list builder and faction esper- expert on Sisters of Battle, it has killed my favorite part of the game. There is no nuance in list building. The difference between 5, 7, 8, 9, and 10, with or without a banner, uh, Zephyrim, was a nuance that was very appreciable and affected the rest of your list composition. It also allowed you to fit in that extra character or squad with creative list build writing. List building has become very binary. It's either on or off. On top of that, char- characters having preset squads they can join really kills it for me. Outside of a limited number of auras, there is a little interaction between units and an army. This is a bit of an exaggeration. It feels as if every unit could just be one base and just degrade as it loses wounds. I am sad to say that I may have to meta chase to find enjoyment at the competitive level for this edition. Still casual AF with friends. There is no reason for me to be a faction expert when my player expression is so blunted by my limited options. Your sad friend, Leroy Jenkins. All right, Leroy, you know what? So first off, we have to say that Leroy is a casual player. He can definitely tone it down. He's like my friend Andrew. He's definitely can tone it down to a casual player, but he is also a top level, very, um, when he's playing a competitive tournament, he's going to be competitive and he's very good at it. I've known several people like this. And uh, he was actually Highlander champion 2021, I think, for, for the whole tournament of 64 people so he's in a different world than i am though so leroy he loves to list build he loves to think about it i can't tell you how many conversations he's had with me where he's like hey what about this what if i did drop one um zephyrum and added you know one something else to another unit you know just for that extra durability or for the force multiplier of being able to add this aura to one more gun, then that's that many more shots, the probability of criticals or whatever. He will just go down this rabbit hole and think about it. Now, I know that is his favorite part of the game. And honestly, I'm going to have to agree with him. I know I just said that I enjoy the, the lack of force org and things like that in 10th edition. And I will not retract that. I still do. But... Being an Age of Sigmar player as well, see, Leroy doesn't really play Age of Sigmar. 
I have been playing Age of Sigmar pretty heavily in 9th edition because I didn't care for 9th edition. So, I'm used to this. This doesn't bother anything for me. You know what I mean? Like, uh, taking things in groups of 10s, Age of Sigmar's been doing it since, I mean, legitimately since AOS 1.0. So that is nothing new for me. But for someone that really likes to be an expert in their faction, saying, oh, well, this is the way you tweak this, that's the way you tweak that, you minus five points here to add five points there, that type of person probably is really suffering in this edition because there will always be an optimal loadout for the unit. I don't care if you're a Devastator squad and you could take one heavy bolter, you could take one missile launcher, you could take whatever, you're going to take the most utilitarian option at the competitive level. And you're going to take all of that thing. No one that I know of even takes one heavy bolter, one plasma cannon, one las cannon. You want a unit that plays a role. And when each person does a different role, oh, heavy bolter is anti-infantry. Las cannon is anti-vehicle. You, you don't want that in a unit, typically. You don't want a Swiss Army knife. You want them to have a dedicated role. And when you comparatively look at what you get out of each weapon option, just talking about a Devastator squad, you can see through probability, you can definitely math hammer this very easily. You can see what probability of value, because they're all the same price, the probability of value and efficiency you're going to get out of every single thing. Okay, what would four heavy bolters get me damage-wise? Okay, what would they get me damage-wise against vehicles? Okay, what about a LAS cannon? What about a LAS cannon versus hordes or versus vehicles? You can very easily do that. And being that they're all the same points, you're going to probably find those things that are the best thing. It's like kind of middle of the road. It can wound this pretty well. It can wound this really well. It does more damage to this. It does a little less to that, but it's nice, well-rounded, whatever. And it is kind of a shame. I think maybe with the just groups of people thing that they're doing now, you know, groups of 10, groups of five, that might have been going a little too far. But as a casual player, it really doesn't phase me. I've already been playing Age of Sigmar since it came out. Even in 1.0, I played Age of Sigmar. So it's really like whatever to me, you know, it ends up being that you're right, Leroy, that you basically could just play Mantic Kings of War and put the whole squad on one big base and just kind of doesn't matter what they have on them. You just say, oh, these are all whatever. And it's it's kind of it does lose some of the the intricacies of the list building and of the weapon loadouts and all of that. Now, Leroy has been telling me a lot about Gene Steeler Cult, and I have not yet dove into my my GSC for 10th edition. I'm actually getting a little tempted, but I haven't bothered with it yet. But he said GSC is extremely good, and when they're used by a top-level player, they're done very, very well. And I'm interested to see exactly uh, how that pans out for Gene Steeler Cult, because I know when it came to power level, Gene Steeler Cult was ridiculous in power level, because you have so many options. You know, you've got the... um. I'm gonna get all these names wrong, but you got the the kill saw or whatever they've got, the chainsaw thing. Uh, it's actually a circular saw. Then you've got the the big like um uh, jaws of life weapon and all of those things. You've got like six different weapon options. What about all hand flamers or or whatever? 
Gene Steeler Cult had all of that. So power level for them was ridiculous because they're assuming that you're going to take every single thing you can because you're paying the points for it technically because all the points are the same. So what they're going to end up doing is either overcosting it or they're going to end up undercosting it. And maybe right now they're slightly undercosting it for the amount of stuff that you can bring. But anyway, I think you can you can take from both of these that this edition, just like every other edition, is not perfect. You're either going to please the narrative people and the casuals, the filthy, dirty casuals, or you're going to please the more competitive people. And I think Leroy Jenkins probably enjoys the competitive side of it more, but with friends, he tones it down and just has a fun game, takes what he wants. You know, I've, I've played Leroy many times. So ultimately, I don't think there's making everybody happy in any case. I think that 10th edition is definitely a good step forward. Maybe they need to adjust some some points here and there to make things, you know, more middle of the line. But ultimately, I like it. And being an Age of Sigmar player, it really doesn't bother me as much as it bothers the list makers. In another note, this doesn't really qualify for the Tesseract mailbox, but somebody messaged me on Messenger, a random person I don't know. And he said that he loved my short story compilation for uh, Tales from the Brutal and Brutality. And that's only the second feedback at all that I've gotten. And uh, both of them have been positive. So I'm very, very happy about that. And uh, he said it was awesome as a quote from his message. The problem with writing books, especially fiction, stuff like that, people love to buy books. But then what, maybe 10% of them actually read what they buy? I mean, God knows I love books, and I've got, uh, geez, four bookshelves in my house? I have four bookshelves full of books, and I bet I've read 10% of them. I mean, it's just, it's crazy how you're like, oh, I want this book, and then you just don't end up reading it. I don't, I don't know what that compulsion is, but a lot of people are like that. So it doesn't matter how many books you sell, there's a very small percentage of the people that are actually going to read it, and those people, a very small percentage of them, will actually even interact with you and send you a message saying they like it or whatever. So I thought it was really cool that Pavel sent me a message and said, hey, your book was awesome. That made my day. So anyway, thank you for writing in, guys. Um, I've got another email waiting in the wings, but it's not time sensitive like these were because these were specifically... Uh, Leroy's been waiting, I think, two, three weeks now for a reply on his email. And uh, Jonathan's was more pertinent to the last episode. So I will save the next email for next week. And uh, let's get on the next segment. Now it's time for Real Talk with Pentcron. And here we are at the Real Talk. All right, you already know from the title of the show what this is about. I'm pretty iffy on the restrictions on characters joining units. Let's talk about this for a second. So, number one, I have to say that most of 10th edition I'm pretty darn happy with. I like all the Force Org changes, as we just discussed in the Tesseract mailbox. Um, There's a lot of things that I like about it. Not everything, but overall, I would say this is definitely a positive over 9th edition. The second caveat I've got is, obviously, these are index entries. They may be very different when the codexes come out. So, those two things have to be said before I get into this. Okay, now it's time for me to bitch and complain. So I'm coming from a person who started in 5th edition, where characters always joined units, right? 5th, 6th, 7th edition, characters joined units, 
they could buff them, whatever, give them a special ability. I love that. I think it's awesome. 8th edition, they got rid of it, gave Mars instead. Ninth edition was much of the same. 10th edition now, you can reattach characters to units. My problem with it, for those of you who may be newer to the game, is that it used to be that characters could attach to literally any unit. Now, a lot of them may not be favorable for them to attach to, right? Or uh, their ability might be more suited to this unit rather than that unit or whatever. But 10th edition seems to be very restrictive in who characters can attach to. And I find that a little odd. Obviously, you would say that they're trying to limit the amount of cheesy combinations by limiting the number of times a character can manipulate a unit, right? Give it up a 5-up Feel No Pain, increase its uh, reanimation protocols if you're talking about Necrons, uh, that sort of thing, right? Make um, devastating wounds on 5-ups or whatever they do, depending on the faction. But my problem with it is that they don't seem to really follow that that much. So let's let's talk about a few different units just in the Necron army and different ways that they can be manipulated. And you'll see very quickly that it's often not manipulated in the way of balance necessarily, right? So let's say the Plasmancer. He gives you uh, lethal hits on a 5-up. Well, if you're using Warriors, he can only attach to Lich Guard, Warriors, or Immortals. Okay. So warriors can put out, uh, what would that be, 40 shots in a turn? 40 shots with, they already have Devastating Wounds on a 6-up, so he gives them a 5-up. Okay, so let's do it on Immortals now. Immortals are half that number of models, which is half that number of shots. So while that's fine, and they hit on a 2-up with him attached to them, it's not nearly as effective as just attaching him to warriors. Okay. Well, let's attach him to Lichguard. Lichguard, well, they don't shoot. So this Plasmancer, even though they're listed as one of the units he can attach to, he is providing them exactly no benefit except the plus one to hit, which any of the characters would give him. And he's not giving them lethal hits at all because they don't shoot and he only affects shooting attacks. So you see right there that they've got that listed as a unit that he can attach to, but he really provides them no benefit uh, more than any other character would. Okay. And obviously if you're going to attach him to immortals or attach him to warriors, you want to attach him to a 20 man squad of warriors, obviously because of the number of shots. So right there is a, a power disparity and that argument about, Oh, well they limit the number of units he can attach to. Oh, that's because of trying to limit cheese or whatever. Well, there's clearly one unit he should be attached to that gives you the most benefit out of any of them. Let's take a different one. Let's talk about the Technomancer, okay? The Technomancer not only allows a 5-up uh, feel-no-pain for the unit attached to, but also helps with their regeneration for their reanimation protocols. So he is basically durability for whatever unit he attaches to, okay? At least this applies to all three units. He can attach to Immortals, Warriors, or Lich Guard. Cool. Okay, that's great. The problem, though, is that when you're talking about durability, let's talk about the Warriors. They're one wound and their toughness four with a four up save. They're not super durable. OK, they're very middle of the line. Well, Immortals, that's a different story. Immortals are toughness five with a three up save. 
when you're talking durability, obviously a five up feel no pain and reanimation on units that are not only fewer models, but also higher toughness and better save. That's just multiplying that durability, right? Okay, that seems even cooler. Well, let's add them to the Lich Guard, who are toughness five, two wounds, a three up save, and probably a four up involve. Now you're talking something that's very durable. Not only are the smaller units more susceptible to being wiped out before they can reanimate, right? And the Technomancer helps them recover expensive models. But also, you've got a higher toughness, tough five. You've got a good save of a three up save. And then you've got a four up invulnerable save. And then you put a five up fill no pain on top of that. So once again, okay, there's obviously one unit out of those three that is probably the most useful. Now, you could argue that the Warriors have way more models, so they're more durable, they can take the hit, and then it would give you time for the Technomancer to reanimate, etc., etc. You could also argue that the Warriors have a weaker save, so you need to give them the 5-up Fiona Pain, whatever. There's, there's tactical choices to what unit you attach to, but what I'm trying to illustrate here is that not all of these matchups are created equal. So, obviously... They may appear that they're trying to make these setups and these matchups as something that's, oh, this is for balance. Well, there's really no balance to it. They have different effects for different units and different numbers of models in the units, etc., etc. So I don't understand why they limited the number of units that a character can attach to, unlike previous editions. Because, okay, let's say we could give the um, the extra reanimation and the 5 of Philno Pain to... Uh, Locust Destroyers, right? They need it terribly, and the Technomancer would greatly help them with that, with their durability and all that, okay? Let's say if we could attach a Plasmancer to the Necron Destroyers. What if we could attach a, um, a Plasmancer to... Uh, it's, it's hard to think of something else that shoots in, um, in Necrons. But anyway, you, you get my point. Is that what if you could attach a um, Technomancer to a scarab swarm or something like that. Like you could, you could really make a lot more combinations. And the thing that Leroy Jenkins was arguing is that you lose a lot of that customization and a lot of the neat interactions that you can tweak in your list building. But I would argue that if they allowed characters to attach to basically any unit, like they used to, it's not every unit, but most of them, then that would add way more durability to all the units, all, way more points efficiency, way more effectiveness, and you could come up with some really neat combos by attaching them to different units. I don't really see why we can't do that. Now, now that we know that balance is not the issue here, they're all, oh, we're worried about balance, I really don't think that's it. I think they're probably being overly cautious they only want you to be able to essentially bolster battle line and uh, Lich Guard aren't battle line, but they're often treated as such. Um, they were core unit before most other things were, etc. But honestly, I think they're, they are just being overly cautious about it. And especially when you've got things like the Strands of Fate and all the issue that Eldari had coming out of the gate for 10th edition, where some of their stuff was just straight up broken. Well... Where's that overcautiousness there? It just seems inconsistent. Now, I also know that there's probably more than one game designer on a new edition, and maybe they don't talk as much as they should. Maybe it's not so much of a unified front as we think it is. But it's interesting to me that 
they took away the granular points for all the weapons, the granular points for adding just one more dude to a squad versus groups of five or ten. They took away a bunch of that stuff. It would be nice if they brought back a little bit of that by expanding the number of units that a character could attach to and giving you more flavorful options. If they don't do that, I don't think that makes 10th edition terrible. I'm not saying that. I just would like to see more options. And certainly, you know there's going to be a power creep with the codexes. There always is. That's that's their business model. Just get used to it. It's not a big deal. So probably you're going to start seeing um, armies that deviate more from the structure. And you can start attaching more things to more units, you know. But I would like to see kind of the old way where any character could join just about any unit. And then you, they give those benefits. Maybe they give better benefits to other units, you know, but but uh, like if you really want the Technomancer to support warriors specifically, okay, give him benefits that are even better for them and give him generic benefits for all of the units. Something of that nature. It's just something in their design choice that I find a little odd for 10th edition. I still enjoy 10th edition, and this is one of my favorite editions so far. I'm going to put that caveat out because we haven't seen codexes yet. But I just find it odd. And you can't say it's for balance because it's already not balanced. Some of these units were made for a certain character. And other units, like the Lich Guard with the Plasmancer, can't even use his abilities. So they're clearly not... I don't even know why they list him as someone who can attach to their unit. Because he get, provides them exactly no benefit. So anyway... Thanks for listening. Thank you to GameMat.eu for supporting the show. Thank you to Panhandle3D.etsy.com for supporting the show. And my beautiful, sexy, succulent, juicy, I mean, just damp all over. I don't know why they're so wet, but my Patreon patrons are succulent. And thank you for supporting the show. I'll see you next week, guys.